Good morning. It's 12.14 a.m. Saturday morning, March 20th, 2021. There is a sample copy of the book Possessed by Thomas Allen in the Play Store and this is what's there it's not the whole book but here's what's there so far skipping over the part where they talk about the movie that uh, William Blatty what was the name William Blatty William Peter Blatty wrote the book and William Friedkin made the movie. (coughs) I'm skipping over those pages over to Thomas Allen's book and his research. There had been a real Exorcism, a real boy had lived through real terror. The story of his possession had never been told until the first edition of my book, Possessed, was published in 1993. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, in this new edition, I have added Father Bodern's diary, which has never been published before. The original diary and one carbon copy went into sealed Catholic archives one maintained by the Jesuits, the other by the Archdiocese of St. Louis. <coughs> Excuse me. A third copy was given to the rector, R-E-C-T-O-R, the rector of the Catholic hospital where the exorcism ended. That third copy, like the other two, was expected to remain forever secret, but fate intervened. When I first became interested in the exorcism, I did not know that the diary existed. All I knew was what I had seen in the newspaper item that had first aroused my curiosity, there was a living witness to the 1949 exorcism that had inspired the fictional book and movie. The item in a gossip column in the Washington Post 
said that a priest who had taken part in the exorcism had granted an interview to a reporter in Lincoln, Nebraska. Curious, I ordered a copy of the newspaper's story. The priest who had given the interview, Father Walter Halloran, H-A-L-L-O-R-A-N, had provided a few tantalizing details about the exorcism. I wanted to see if he had any more information, but when I called the Nebraska University where he had been teaching, he was no longer there, and no one would tell me where he had gone. Using lore gleaned from six years as a student of Jesuits, I began making phone calls to Jesuits at universities and libraries throughout the United States. I finally found Father Halloran in a little Minnesota town where he was the pastor of a church after introducing myself on the phone and telling him why I called. I suddenly remember that the day was Halloween. We both had a laugh together over that. We realized that We shared a similar sense of humor, and somehow that was all we needed. Soon we were talking as if we had known each other for a long time. We were unable to get together for a while, but until we met, we spoke frequently on the phone. In one conversation, Father Halloran casually mentioned that a Jesuit who assisted the exorcist had kept a diary. The news astonished me. I had never heard of an account of a modern exorcism. A diary kept by a Jesuit would be a trustworthy eyewitness description of a mysterious, right, long-cloaked in superstition. Could I see the diary? Father Halloran hesitated before he responded. The Roman Catholic Church routinely locked up its files on exorcisms. Perhaps I had pushed him too far, but never underestimate a Jesuit. Quote, I think, he said, that I can find a copy. Close quote. 
A few days later, I received a package from Father Halloran. My hands were trembling when I tore open the package which contained 24 single-spaced typewritten pages. I began reading. Satan, diabolical, a huge red devil. I was reading the words of a witness. One of 14 witnesses, including nine Jesuits, who could, quote, testify and verify different phenomena, close quote, about the exorcism. I later authenticated the diary through other sources, including a non-Jesuit source who provided me with the missing pages 25 and 26. I now had the most thorough and most reliable depiction of a modern exorcism written in modern times. The Odyssey of my copy of the diary is almost as incredible as the day-by-day narration of the exorcism itself. My copy had been locked in a room in a building about to be raised, R-A-Z-E-D. And if you aren't familiar with that English word, if you're in another country, even though it sounds like R-A-I-S-E, raised, it's R-A-Z-E-D, raised, meaning the building was about to be torn down. My copy had been locked in a room in a building about to be raised or torn down. By chance, these 24 pages of the diary were snatched from the doomed building. By further chance, the pages reached Father Halloran, and because of a friendship launched by a Halloween phone call, the 24 pages reached me. To tell here how the diary was hidden away in a locked room and how it was so faithfully found would be getting ahead of the story. The story properly begins exactly as the diary begins with what the diarist 
called the, quote, background of the case, end quote, the case of a, of a boy possessed. Chapter 1 Is this you, Aunt Harriet? Robert Mannheim was born in 1935 into a family struggling through the Great Depression. His father, Carl Mannheim, like many of the fathers in the Maryland suburb where the Mannheims lived, worked for the federal government. The pay was low, but the job was steady. Life kept tightening up as the depression wore on, and soon Grandmother Wagner moved in. Three generation households were not unusual then, for, as people often said, when times were hard, all you could depend upon was your family. That would be a lesson Robbie would hear again and again as he grew up. In January 1949, when Robbie was still a few months away from turning 14, everyday life was as ordinary as it could be. He got up, had breakfast, went to school, came home, listened to favorite radio programs, did his homework, ate supper, and went to bed. He was a slight boy, weighing about 95 pounds, with no obvious mental or physical problems, not much for sports, he preferred playing board games around the kitchen table. As an only child, he had to depend upon the adults in the household for his playmates. One of these adults was his aunt Harriet. Carl Mannheim's sister, who lived in St. Louis but visited the Mannheims frequently. When she stayed at Carl's house, Harriet responded to Robbie's interest in board games by introducing him to a new one, the Ouija, Ouija board, spelled O-U-I-J-A, Ouija board. She taught him to place his fingers lightly on the planchette, a wooden platform that moved on little rollers across the polished wood surface of the Ouija board. Arrayed around the board 
were the letters of the alphabet, the numbers 0 to 9, and the words yes and no. Robbie was fascinated by the Ouija board. He enjoyed the skittering movement of the planchette as it skimmed about, veering from one letter to the next, spelling out answers to questions that he or Aunt Harriet asked. The Ouija board, its trademark name, fused the French we O-U-I and the German Ja J-A was a game. And something more. Because Aunt Harriet was a spiritualist, she saw the Ouija board as a way to make contact between the world, between this world and the next. The planchette, she explained to Robbie, would sometimes move in response to answers given by spirits of the dead. They communicated by entering the consciousness of people at the board. The spirits, Aunt Harriet said, produced impulses that traveled through the medium to the planchette, which moved obediently to spell out words or point to yes or no. Aunt Harriet seems to have treated Robbie more like a special friend than as a nephew. She had an exotic quality, especially with her talk about spiritualism. Between the visits of Aunt Harriet, Robbie sometimes played at the Ouija board himself. He was used to finding solitary amusement. Harriet devoted a great deal of time and energy to attempts to communicate with the spirits of the dead. She believed not only that life goes on after death, but also that she could communicate with the spirits of people who had died. For years, Robbie's mother, Phyllis, had heard about spiritualism from her sister-in-law. Phyllis would not call herself a spiritualist, but she did believe in some of what Harriet professed. Robbie's father, Carl, did not give it much credence. Neither did Grandmother Wagner. Aunt 
Harriet told Robbie and Phyllis that, lacking a Ouija board, spirits could try to get through to this world by rapping on walls. The phenomenon was well known to spiritualists who could cite many cases in which contact was established through rapping by counting raps and responding with the same number. A living person could inaugurate a communication system and then develop a code. Rapping was slower and less efficient than the Ouija board, but it was another way for a spirit to get through. The best form of communication with the spirit world, Aunt Harriet believed, was through a seance in which believers joined hands with a medium, fusing their psychic energies. If the seance worked, a spirit took over the medium's entire body instead of just the fingers and hands. The record of Harriet's activities in Maryland does not include a seance, but as subsequent events show, the Mannheim family was well aware of several methods for attempting to make contact with the dead. Great forces now were beginning to focus on the Mannheim's home. A one and a half story frame house in Mount Rainier, Maryland, a suburb of Washington, D.C. Call them psychological forces, though this is a feeble designation for the overwhelming horror to come. Others, then or now, may want to call those forces diabolical or supernatural or paranormal, whatever the origin, something powerful was about to invade Robbie's mind and possibly his soul. One custodian of psychological forces at that time and place was Aunt Harriet. For a spiritualist like her, attempts to deal with the dead were neither pagan nor dangerous. Most spiritualists considered themselves good Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, who had proved through his 
resurrection, the existence of life after death. Spiritualists, however, did not heed the biblical admonitions against consorting with spirits. Deuteronomy calls such trafficking, quote, an abomination unto the Lord. And Leviticus says, quote, a man also or woman that hath a familiar spirit or that is a wizard shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. Close quote. The ominous biblical words show how deep in the human psyche is the fear of the dead. Yet, in the biblical story of Saul, even a king once blessed by God resorts to the use of a medium King Saul in disguise goes to quote a woman that had a familiar spirit in quote the witch of Endor he asks her to bring up the prophet Samuel who asks Quote, Why hast thou disquieted me to bring me up? Close quote. Samuel, who can look into Saul's dark future, tells him that he will die in battle, which he soon does. Many before and since Saul have sought that power, the ability to see the future. Saul's visit to the witch showed a belief that the dead dwelling somewhere in the afterlife could see future events and predict human behavior. The belief has persisted, as have fears about attempts to communicate with the dead. But the rewards sometimes seemed worth the risks. Clairvoyance, power, and knowledge. Attempts to communicate with the dead have traditionally been conducted through a medium. He or she summons up a spirit who then takes over the medium. This is a form of possession. Spiritualists like Aunt Harriet 
did not look upon their beliefs as an acceptance of possession, but whether using a seance or an Ouija board, spiritualists did dabble in the same phenomenon that the Bible so vehemently denounced. On Saturday, January 15, 1949, Carl and Phyllis Mannheim went out for the evening, leaving Robbie and Grandmother Wagner alone in the house. Not long after Carl and Phyllis left, Grandmother Wagner heard a dripping sound. She and Robbie checked every faucet in the neat, well-maintained house. They could not find the source of the dripping They went into each room, stopped and listened, straining to find the location of the persistent rhythmic sound. They finally decided that the dripping came from Grandmother Wagner's bedroom under the sloping ceiling of the second floor. They entered and while listening to the loud dripping they saw a painting of Christ began shaking as if somebody were bumping the wall behind the painting. By the time Carl and Phyllis Mannheim returned home, the sound of dripping had stopped. But another stranger sound had begun. Scratching. As if claws were scraping across wood. All four stood in Grandmother Wagner's bedroom and listened. Carl crouched down and looked under the bed. The scratching seemed to come from there. Carl smiled and said a mouse or rat had decided to come in from the winter cold to build a nest under Grandma's bed. The scratching finally stopped and everyone went to bed, each with a private wonderment or fear. About seven o'clock the following night, the scratching began again under Grandmother Wagner's bed. Again, 
Carl Mannheim blamed a mouse or rat. He called in an exterminator who pulled up a floorboard in search of signs of rodents. He found none, but he put down poison in case the rodent had only temporarily disappeared. For the next several nights, the scratching continued, beginning about seven o'clock and fading away around midnight. Among family members, there was little talk about the nightly noise. Outwardly, everyone agreed with Carl, a rat or mouse was making the noise and eventually it would stop. The scratching was an annoyance, nothing more. Still, there was some desperation in his search. He tore up more floorboards and ripped down wall panels. By later reports, no one at this time speculated much about the cause of the scratching. But Phyllis at least was beginning to think that the dripping and the scratchings were somehow connected with Aunt Harriet and her attempts to communicate with the dead. On January 26, 11 days after the first scratching sounds occurred, Aunt Harriet died in St. Louis, where the Mannheim family had many relatives. Robbie, who seems to have been devastated by the death, went back to using the Ouija board. He spent hours at the board. His parents and grandmother were not interested in what questions he was asking and what answers he may have been reading as the planchette moved about the board. He almost certainly used the Ouija board to try to reach Aunt Harriet. Whatever his success, she did indeed remain part of the household, at least as a memory. Around the time of Aunt Harriet's death, the scratching sounds in the grandmother's room stopped. Carl proclaimed 
that the noisy rodent had died or had gone away. But upstairs in Robbie's room, new noises began. Noises that at first he alone could hear. He described them as squeaking shoes. It was, he said, as if someone in squeaking shoes were walking along his bed. He did not seem to be frightened by the sound which began just as he put on his pajamas and crawled into bed. After six nights of squeaking shoes, Phyllis and Grandmother Wagner went into Robbie's room and lay with him on his bed. They all heard the sound of moving feet, but the feet seemed to be marching to the beat of drums. Up the bed, down the bed, up the bed, down. Phyllis could stand it no longer. Quote, Is this you, Aunt Harriet? Close quote. She suddenly asked. No answer. Phyllis waited a moment and said, Quote, If you are Harriet, knock three times. End quote. Something that felt like a wave of pressure pushed upon the three lying on the bed. The pressure seemed to pass through them and strike the floor beneath them. The sound of a knock reverberated from the floor. Another wave, another knock, a third wave, a third knock. Phyllis again waited, then said, quote, If you are Harriet, tell me positively by knocking four times, end quote. A pressure wave and then a knock, a wave, a knock, a wave, a knock, a wave, and the fourth knock. Now, below them, inside the mattress they lay on, they heard what seemed to be 
the scratching of a claw. It did not touch them, but they felt the sound undulating through the mattress. Afterward, comparing reactions, Phyllis and the grandmother remembered that terrified each had done the same thing. Each had tried to pretend that she did not hear the scratching. It was at that moment they both later realized that the mattress began to shake gently at first, then violently. When the shaking stopped, the edges of the bed cover flew out from under the mattress as the women later recounted the edges of the covers quote stood up above the surface of the bed in a curled form as though held up with starch in quote wordlessly Robbie his mother and his grandmother slipped out of the suddenly still bed and touched the stiffened coverlet its sides fell back and the bed again looked normal but the scratching on the mattress did not stop that night or the next night or the next The scratching went on night after night for more than three weeks. Nor were these alarming phenomena confined to the Mannheim's home. The desks at Robbie's school were movable seat desk units with a single arm acting as a writing surface 
several times in January and February, Robbie's desk lurched into the aisle and began skittering about, banging into other desks and causing schoolroom uproar. Although the teacher naturally assumed that Robbie's feet were propelling his wayward desk, he swore that he had not caused it to move. It moved by itself, he said. Later, describing the moving desk to his mother, Robbie said the desk glided around the floor like a planchette. There is a vast worldwide literature about events like these. Bizarre, inexplicable happenings that people experience and attempt to describe. The accounts radiate out in concentric circles with the frightened, stammering witnesses at the hub. Around the hub, in the first tight circle, are stunned relatives and friends, hearing and wondering, trusting, but disbelieving. In the second circle, beyond those first auditors who know the witnesses are the neighbors and the rumor mongers telling what they heard or what they imagined they heard, garnishing the distant happening with erroneous details plucked from other stories or from their own inspirations. From that weak and ever-widening circle usually comes the account that reaches the back pages of newspapers to be read with smirks by skeptics. Eventually, the accounts find their way into the magazines and books of the true believers, the zealots whose faith in the unexplained is not matched by a demand for facts. But something different was to happen to the accounts of happenings in the Mannheim house. In the first circle would be not only 
relatives and friends, but also ministers, psychologists, and priests who would write down what they heard and saw through their test through their testament the events whirling about Robbie would be soberly recorded for the next few days however there would be only the hub no outsider would be there to live the nights that began with dread in the house no one but Robbie and his family would be there to hear and see whatever it was that they believed they were hearing and seeing at home Robbie was always on the scene just as something mysterious happened a coat on a hanger seemed to fly out of a closet and across a room a bible seemed to rise from a bookcase and land at Robbie's feet. He was standing nearby when others saw an orange and a pear fly across a room. One day, the kitchen table tipped over. Another day, the breadboard did the breadboard slid off the kitchen counter and clattered to the floor. One morning, Phyllis scolded Robbie for scattering his clothes all over the kitchen. Robbie swore that when he went to bed, he had put the clothes on a chair in his bedroom. One Sunday relatives came calling. They were all in the living room when the large stuffed chair that Robbie was sitting in seemed to rise slightly off the floor and then flip over. Robbie somersaulted onto the floor. Stunned family members gathered around the chair. Robbie's father and uncle each sat in the heavy chair and tried to flip it over. Each man failed. F-A-I-L-E-D 
each man failed. While the family members were still talking about the flipping chair, one of them pointed to a small table, a vase, V-A-S-E, a vase or vase, was slowly rising from the table. It seemed to hang in the air for a moment. Then it flew across the room and shattered against a wall. Robbie's family at first tried to maintain a normal life. Robbie even joked about the funny things happening around him. One day, the family members piled into Carl Mannheim's car and set off for a visit to friends in Boonesboro, Maryland, about 40 miles away. The ride was uneventful. The Mannheims, grateful for a respite from troubles at home, joined their friends in the living room while the adults chattered, chatted, while the adults chatted, they saw something that they all later agreed they had seen the rocking chair in which Robbie sat began spinning like a top. His feet were off the floor. It seemed impossible for the rocking chair to be whirling about. But they had seen it with their own eyes. Something was happening to Robbie, but what? His frantic parents tried to explain the phenomena as mischief tricks that he learned from some book on magic. almost out of time so we may have to close soon and start a new session we only have four minutes left so we'll wrap this up in a couple minutes something was happening to Robbie but what his frantic parents tried to explain the phenomena as mischief 
tricks that he learned from some book on magic. Again and again, Robbie said, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. But no one in school had believed him when he said that. And now it was happening at home and at the friend's home. He said he was too embarrassed to go to school. His parents let him stay home while they tried to figure out what to do next. Thank you for listening. We'll continue on the next segment.